I came up with the idea of real leadership being resilient. So I think that's really key in a leader. Um, a leader never gives up. <laughs> you know, you, 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 you'll hit obstacles. Things won't go well, maybe. Um, but you'll keep coming back. And if you really believe in something, you won't mm. give up on it. So that whole sense of resilience and building resilience in yourself, but also in the team around you because you need others around you. This is a GK Media Podcast. Trevor O'Clarty. Thank you so much for coming in and joining me on Gary Talks. It's a pleasure, Gary. I'm delighted to be here and thanks for inviting me. My pleasure. And I've known you for years and you've had such a colourful uh, journey personally and professionally. You are now the Director of Operations and Human Resources at TG Cahar. But in the past, you've been an Artistic Director at on Tyviark, which is the Irish Language Theatre here in Galway City. I've known you from being a producer on Ross and Rune, you're also a producer on Fair City, which are two Irish television soaps which have been running for decades here in Ireland. You were also involved in politics. You were a senator. Um, you're big into leadership and empowering people and resilience and being real and authentic and really what contemporary leadership should be. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation in this podcast. But firstly, I want to talk to you about growing up in Huddersfield in the UK in the 60s, because I didn't know that you were born in England, because to me, you're always, uh, you know, I've always known you as a Gaelgar, as an Irish speaker. So just the idea that you grew up in the UK. And I think my own grandfather was in Huddersfield in the 60s oh, really? as well. So it was obviously a place where Irish families uh, were getting work mm -hmm. uh, and moving there. But you moved to Connemara later. But what was it like growing up in Huddersfield? Was it like an Irish ghetto you were in? Because for me, you've always been, you know, one who really is a strong advocate for the Irish language and Irish culture. Yeah, well, I suppose it began with my parents who had to emigrate in the 60s because of the economic situation here. So they were both from Connemara. My mom was from Lettermore and my dad was from Carna, but they never met in Connemara. They actually both emigrated to London. Uh, in the early 60s. Uh, so they met there and got married and had my oldest brother. And then a work opportunity came up in Huddersfield. So my dad, uh, we all shunted up to Huddersfield then to live there. We lived in outside of the town, so it was quite rural. Uh, but we were very much within an, an English community, mm. uh, working class, um, council estate. It was great, great crack, great people. There were some people with Irish connections around us and there was a a couple of pubs around the town where the Irish would congregate of a weekend and particularly of a Sunday. Um, but it was funny that um, to explain where it is, um, we used to be sent to mass on the Sunday and we'd have to get a bus three miles away to a place called Home Firth. And every Sunday, well, loads of Sundays, we'd see the cast and crew from The Last of the Summer Wine oh. because the cafe that they filmed The Last of the Summer Wine in was just across the front from the front door of the church. So we'd have great crack and we'd see Compo and all the lads yeah. uh, hanging around and all the crew and the lights and things. So that was the accent. That was where it was coming from, that type of rural area. Uh, a lovely space. I, I really enjoyed it. So I would have gone to uh, primary and, well, the college, infant school and junior school there. And then I went on to secondary school. And you start in secondary school a little bit earlier over there. So I did two years in secondary school. Um, and were you speaking Irish when you were living over there? We weren't really. So my parents would have spoken Irish to each other. And there would have been a couple of Irish people who would have visited from time to time who spoke Irish. 
Uh, and I'd always say that um, my mom never spoke Irish to us, but she spoke it at us, particularly when, when she lost the rag. Okay, with if, a if, in her When hand. you did something wrong, <laughs> the Irish was the first language to go out. So, yeah, yeah. so it was probably around us all the time, but we never really spoke it, apart from the, we might know the odd word. And we'd come home as regularly as possible in the summer to my grandparents, either in Lettermore or in Karna, and we'd maybe spend a couple of weeks there. So we'd hear the Irish at that stage. But again, we were, I was known in England as the Paddy, Strangely enough, but then when I came home to live in Karna, I was known as the English lad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so it was that that sense of identity has always been something that's fascinated me. You know, who am I? Where am I from? And what was your perception of the language back then? Because from my the reason why I ask is from my own knowledge and awareness of history, it was kind of seen as the poor person's language because if you had Irish, you went abroad, it didn't get you work. You know, and that's why so many people lost the language you know, and some some of them even changed their surnames to fit in more with whatever country they were living in. Yeah, no, very very much so. So that 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 generation of my parents would have anglicised them, their names, their surnames, etc., and they would have learned English as quickly as possible. Um, some some of the, that generation would have struggled with English, even and wouldn't have great English. Uh, my own grandfather would have been on the beat in in England over the years, and and when we came home to live with him in Karna. Be, and, and that was the primary reason for coming home was my grandparents were getting quite old. He hadn't, he really hadn't, hadn't a word of English. Okay. So we had to talk uh, Irish to him. My grandmother would have spoken uh, reasonably good English, but he, even though he'd been over and back to England, he never, he didn't really pick it up. Yeah. Um, so that was probably the primary objective. The other objective would have been going to school in Karna, where it was an Irish language medium school and the lads and the ladies in the, in the playground were having the crack in Irish. And if you didn't pick it up quick, you were you were losing out. So uh, thankfully, I had a couple of really good teachers as well. And nobody told me at that stage that you could get a, a dispensation from the Irish language. They just said, well, you, you know, you need to go to the Irish classes, do the Irish stuff. It's the same as everybody else. And um, Sean Dupuyer, who would be the father of the footballer, Sean, Sean Og uh, was one of my first Irish teachers and he was fantastic. And he, one of the things he used to ask us to do was to learn a poem off by heart every week. And somebody would be picked to go to the top of the class and recite the poem or the whatever the piece of prose. And, you know, he just said to me, you know, you need to do that same as everybody else. And I didn't think twice about it after that. Um, so we did and I got my own poems and stuff like that. And, and was it about survival then or were you beginning to fall in love with the language? It was probably to not stand out. Um, my, my accent would have been a really broad Yorkshire accent. So when I speak English, I always speak in an Irish accent because I yeah. adapted very quickly <laughs> because you just get the mickey taken out of you if you don't. Uh, and some people genuinely couldn't understand what I was saying. They just didn't understand the accent. So I, I adapted fairly quickly. And it's quite funny now. My kids would laugh at me now because if, I ever, if I'm ever in conversation with my two older brothers or my sister, I tend, the, 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 the other accent tends to come out or yeah. twin, twinges of it come out, you know, and they're yeah. saying, you never speak like that to us, you know. So, but I just, I... I suppose the cultural thing for me as well at the time was that um, we didn't play Gaelic football. So I'd never seen really Gaelic football until I came home. I was useless uh, in the fields. I was no good foot and turf or helping out with the spuds or with the hay. You do you do your bit, but you could see people taking pity on you and say, take a break there, you know. So I tended towards other activities like drama in school and debating. 
So I got involved in the in the debating uh, group in school and I was on the junior debate, Gaelin debating teams because uh, I, I like to discuss things. I liked to, I had lots of thoughts and theories about things and I, I really enjoyed the debating. We had, And again, we had two fantastic teachers. We had Michael Tim uh, O'Connell from Inverin and Sean Casey from, from Weenish who, who were really into the debating and they bring us to the into the jazz or you know to other schools around uh, that were Irish medium and we'd be in the, in all the debating competitions. So I really enjoyed that, and I, we enjoyed doing plays in school. And um, at the time as well, I suppose we had a really strong network of, of youth clubs across Connemara that were sponsored at the time by Udrasnagelta. So you had Brian O'Boyle, who is still alive and and kicking. He's a really old age; he's into his nineties, but he was phenomenal. And a guy called Peter Padra Mullen, Peter Mullins from Letter Mullen, and they between them ran a whole network in conjunction with, say, Conor Nagelga of youth clubs in almost every parish in Connemara. So we'd go there to our own youth club on a Friday night, and you'd you'd go off and you'd visit. Maybe you'd have a sports weekend in places, or you might come together for Cayley nights or discos, or uh, it could be table tennis competitions, whatever it was, chess competitions, scoriachty. So getting to know people at that level was really good and it was great fun. And um, so I suppose we really enjoyed the language through doing things that were were great fun. And interestingly enough, there was a national network of those youth clubs as well. So you'd meet at once or twice a year, you'd meet people from the other Gaeltath areas and you'd get to know them over the years. And um, some of them are still still friends now. For example, Poddy, Poddy O'Linard and myself would have crossed uh, paths way back then doing doing debating competitions against each other. Yeah. And we're still great friends to this day. And it, and it's amazing to show, you know, the power of people in the community working with the youth, keeping them occupied, keeping them busy, bringing them around, you know, making the weekends fun, the impact that that has and how that carries through life. Because I suppose, you know, myself having two young girls now, um, I can see that there doesn't seem to be as much community involvement or support from the community as even I would have had growing up being involved in youth clubs and so on. Um, But it's just interesting seeing you talking about Mm. those days touring around and you know, the fun that you had and so on. Yeah, I think there's amazing people across Ireland who who volunteer every day, day in, day out with, with uh, young people and organisations. But I think there's a lot of people who shy away from it now because they feel there's a great responsibility. Mm. There's more legal responsibilities. You have to formally organise your the groups that you're working with. Um, you have insurance and all this kind yeah. of child protection issues, obviously, which are all really, really important. Yeah. But it's almost like the onus of having to do that has scared people off. Yeah, it's true. Because w- when I started off in business 10 years ago, one of the things I was doing was summer camps and we were doing them with teenagers, mm. you know, f- filmmaking summer camps, radio summer camps. And I actually, as you're saying it there now, I intentionally pulled away from that because of all the policies and pressure coming in you know, with insurance and child protection and, you know, you need a certain amount of adults there with a certain amount of children and just so many things could happen. There could be allergies, you know, people could be on different medication that you had to be aware of. It was just like, this is just too much. Yeah, it's a huge responsibility on people, you know, and um, I suppose we are lucky that we do have great organisations that do this and they employ people to do it, but you kind of lose a little bit of that volunteerism when it's actually people who are employed to do it as well. So it's it's a hard balance, but I suppose you have to credit the likes of the GAA and Coltus and uh, Cunder and the Gaelge and all these types of organisations that are doing this day in, day out. And um, 
to give kids the space to to learn those social skills as well is really important. Yeah. Uh, and in language context for us, it's about having fun and enjoying what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes even getting out of that school environment into a group of strangers you don't know is really good because that helps you find yourself that bit quicker as well and create your own independence and confidence and so on. Yeah, and I see it with my own kids who are teenagers that um, they can be themselves they're different they're they're not the people they they are at home so we yeah. still see them as the kids but when somebody when you see somebody else talking to them you um, you can see them speaking to them like adults and you speak to them in irish then at home yeah so oh, it's brilliant. all irish at home yeah excellent yeah excellent. so watching um last of summer wine being filmed near you know home in huddersfield did that kind of grab you from a young age when you're seeing film cameras and so on saying, oh, I, I like this. I'd like to get into this. Well, we were just in awe that, you know, because these guys were just stars mm. at the time. So it obviously, it, I think it, I, I stored it away in the back of my head somewhere um, because, I, but I didn't come back to that for quite a long time. Um, I suppose going, I really enjoyed the theatre. I, I enjoyed the drama in school and then went to college. The career guidance at my at my stage was quite rudimentary. Um, so at my at that time in the 80s, when you we were going from school in Karna, uh, the, the advice we were giving us, well, you're going to UCG, number one. So you have two choices. You're either doing arts or commerce. So I asked the, uh, the guy who was talking to me, uh, you know, so what do you think I should do? He said, I, I said, what are all the other guys doing? So there's a five or six of us going at the same time. And he said, well, they're most of them are doing arts. I said, okay, so I'll do commerce. Okay. Not thinking it through, not looking at the course. And is not that because Karen thought the only jobs out there are in commerce or arts? Was I, that? I think so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I ended up doing commerce. So I came in and uh, I really didn't have a grow for commerce, particularly counting economics. I could just about get myself through it. Um, I found that marketing gave me the leeway to to think a bit more expressively, let's put it that way. But the big thing for me about college was joining Uncomodromiata uh, and Dramsock. So when when Socks Day came around, the first thing I did was I, I enrolled for both Dramsock and Uncomodromiata. And in the first year uh, in college, the Dramsock were doing a production of The Field. So I auditioned for that and I got the part of the Bull McCabe. Oh, wow. And then uh, Harry McGee, who's now an Irish Times uh, mm. uh, political correspondent, uh, was producing a, a version of The Odd Couple by Neil Simon for Comandromiata. So I did a production with both of those and I found that Dramsock wasn't quite as much fun. Uh, that didn't take themselves so seriously and we had great crack doing the plays. So I ended up um, doing qu quite a lot of plays in college, but as well as that, myself and a number of friends who had been around Comandromiata at the time decided in the 80s, um, and to keep yourself going in college, you needed a few bob, you yeah. needed money. There weren't many jobs to be found. And we came up with this plan of, by the end of first year in college, if we were able to go around to all these summer colleges and do workshops or do a little play and charge the colleges a few bob, we might have, you know, we might make a bit of money mm. and we'd have a bit of crack on the way. So that was the plan. And we did that. So we set up a drama company called Nafaniha. And... Um, that first year was really successful because we were supported by a, a, an amateur drama organization called So we didn't have any, any car. We had no way to get around. But the people who worked for would pick us up, drop us off and collect us and bring us home again. And we did uh, make a few bob. We were, we were lucky enough to have somebody who had a sensible head on them 
uh, minding the money that summer. <laughs> and we were on rations. We were rationed to a couple of bob a week to to have the odd pint after, yeah, after, yeah. after the shows. But we ended up making 500 pounds each at the end of the summer. Brilliant. And I remember we were laughing because there were people coming home from the States after doing J1s and stuff like that. And they hadn't made as much yeah. and they hadn't had as much crack. So, but what, what that spawned then was that Nafana hit continued. And, um, we, 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 we had this imagination that, well, why couldn't we have a theatre company in Asquilga that would be working professionally? So we finished our degrees, those of us who were in college. At that stage as well, money for the arts was really tight. And the only really place you could go was the Arts Council or Board in Asquilga for us from an Irish language point of view. But the only people being funded by the Arts Council were the likes of the Abbey or Druid or really well-established companies. Uh, so we turned to FOSS. And FOSS at that stage was the... Um, if, you know, instead of going on the dole, the dole, you could go on a FOSS course. Yeah. And FOSS would sponsor courses in different projects. So we were lucky enough to find a guy called Frank Kelly in Galway who worked with FOSS. And we pitched him this madcap idea that he should sponsor a FOSS course for a theatre company, which he did. And then Oris and Gaelga and Oris and gave us an office and a space downstairs to do rehearsals. So we had the FOSS course for quite a number of years and, and it did facilitate us. We got a bit bits of sponsorship here and there. Uh, and the Fawny had continued for four or five years doing plays, Asquilga, all around the country. Um, and probably the Pinnacle then was a big show for the Arts Festival in 1991 called Yerma. And from that then we were invited to um, the Expo in Seville in 1992 to perform there as well. Wow. So, yeah. And was this your main job then at the time? Yeah. The so, so when the way the FOSS course, course worked, you had to have a supervisor. So I was officially the supervisor, but I was also the uh, director of the of, of the productions that we were doing. And we had other people coming in and out as well. But um, so it was just an incredible time. So there was mm. about 10 of us, 10 or 11 of us on that. Um, and we just spent all of our time doing plays, researching plays, doing workshops, learning more, bringing people in to do workshops with us. And it was absolutely fundamental to what I ended up continuing yeah. continuing to do. And and were you writing plays or was there a lot of plays already written in Irish Alta but never really seen on stage? There was a mix, really. We we did a bit of everything. So we took some European classics. So Yerma would be a huge European classic written by Lorca. Uh, and, and it was written in civil war times in, in the 30s. Um, and it's an amazing play. Uh, but then we wrote our own plays and we adapted plays. We took stories um, we took books and uh, adapted them. So we, but the, the focus we had as well was we used an awful lot of puppet, puppeteering and visual uh, tricks and lots of music. And we worked with the incredible Pat Bracken, uh, who oh, many yes, of uh, your listeners might know, who was an incredible puppeteer here in Galway. Uh, sadly passed away far too young but um so we worked with people like pat and, and and tried to create these really visual attractive fun spectacles for people so that the language wouldn't be an obstacle to people that they could come and enjoy a production um and that's the yeah so we spent it up ended up doing quite a few years of that and then does the FOSS scheme come to an end or how how does all, that all fizzle out yeah it, it, it eventually came to an end but we probably moved on as well because at that stage in the early 90s, um, there had been the movement since the early, late 80s around a t TV station for the Irish language. So you'd had the um, the pirate broadcast in Ross Muck um, in the late 80s where... I didn't know that. Yeah, there was a pilot broadcast that... Um, like the, a TV? Yeah. All right. Yeah. So there was a movement called Carta Sivilt and the Gaeltacht, the Gaeltacht civil rights movement in the 60s, who campaigned for Udaras and the and Radio and the And I suppose the next thing they campaigned for them was a TV station and they were being told by all these... So just to explain, so yeah. Udaras and is there to support businesses setting up in the Gaeltacht, which Gaeltacht are Irish-speaking language areas in Ireland. 
Yes. And the idea is that you run your business through speaking Irish. Yeah. Um, and then Radio Negraldegla is an Irish-speaking national radio, radio station. station. Yeah. yeah. So they had campaigned for both of those to be set up, and the the, the reasoning behind that was the was to save the Gaeltacht areas, to keep people living there, to give them employment, but also the cultural aspect as well of having. Um, being able to do your business as Gaelga and to be to, to be able to broadcast as Gaelga. So their next step was then to try and have a TV station. That's but I, all the engineers were saying, that's impossible. You couldn't possibly do that, blah, blah, blah. So they did, as they had done with the radio station, they did a pirate, pirate broadcast. So they set up a transmitter on a hill in Kilhiran. They set up a, a temporary studio in Rosmok and they did a pirate broadcast over a weekend and they said, now lads, who That's said you, who said it can't be done? Yeah. So the whole movement then, uh, I suppose what was happening then, there was momentum being, was gathering to the setting up of the, t of television, as it was at the time, TG Car now. Um, and as part of that, Uderos Nogueltat again had really good, great foresight in that they set up training courses because they said, well, if a station comes, we need people to, to work in them. So quite a lot of people uh, involved in drama got got involved in these training courses, uh, and I did one which was run by Udras and and RTE. Uh, so we were honing our skills uh, in, in in that direction. And in between, then I had you mentioned the Thaiwerk. So in, yeah. in, after the Fonia, I took a full time job, my first real paid job in the Thaiwerk as well, continuing the 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 theatre thing. But then I moved on into the into the training course and then into the whole media sphere. It's mad. So th this channel. Uh, Tina G, it was called originally, now known as TG Car, which is an Irish language speaking channel. I, I mean, at the time, probably people didn't know if this would work. Um, I'm sure you're facing so much negativity. And like I said there, you know, people just putting you down and saying this won't happen. This won't work. This won't survive. This is just, you know, a fad or whatever. And for me, when Tina G started, it was a... a Really, really important because I grew up in Galway City. So we we were taught Irish as just a subject in the classroom. Um, so all the subjects we did was, was through English. And I remember pretty much hating the Irish language because of the way it was taught. And I remember a particular teacher who would punch me or puck me in the back when I was writing something and I wasn't getting it correct. And it was that feeling of, I feel stupid because of this language, because I'm not getting this language. Um, and anytime I'm trying something, if I'm not getting it right, I'm getting hit, you know, or f feeling humiliated amongst, you know, my friends in the classroom. So because this makes me feel stupid, I now hate it. Mm. Um, so I very much grew up um, going through the, the, the school system of not liking my native language, Irish, mm. uh, because of how it made me feel. And I remember then that there was a teacher in secondary school called Seamus Gavin from my Cullen. And he said one day, he kind of, he just put the chalk down and he looked at all the lads in the class. And he's like, okay, you don't know Irish. So we're going to start from the very basics and teach you Irish from the very basics as if you're nearly an eight-year-old. And that's what he did. And suddenly the language started to make sense and I started to enjoy it. And, he, you know, fair play to him for having, um, you know, and being confident enough to say, look, we're just going to start from scratch altogether because mm -hmm. you need it. And he just pulled us through and supported us. And I started then to fall in love with the language. And then at the same time, Tina G was starting up this Irish language TV. And it suddenly wasn't, 
you know, with respect, men with crooked backs out on the field, foot and turf. And, you know, it, it became sexy. There was young people speaking it, attractive young people speaking it. There was drama. Um, like, I think, you know, for people growing up now when they see, you know, T.G. Cahar as it is today, they just see it for what it is. But like going back into the 80s from someone who spoke English mainly mm -hmm. to how T.G. Cahar suddenly made the language cool mm -hmm. I think just had a massive effect yeah it's been a phenomenal cultural um, explosion in a sense you know and and we can I can appreciate exactly what you're saying about the way people uh, felt about the language and it's it's great that there were likes of Seamus Gavin who, yeah. who had that foresight to, to bring people back to basics and show them the love he would have had he has for the language himself you know but at the time, it was absolute madness as well, because we really, in a lot of senses, didn't know what we were doing. Uh, we had to learn really fast. Mm. We made loads and loads and loads of mistakes. Um, but we had we had this drive around us and the people involved in TG Car and all the production companies had this drive that we're, we're, we've got to go for this because there was huge hostility. There was huge derision nationally uh, from establishment media, from establishment political parties, from spokespersons, etc. And people who really didn't like the language, uh, that this was just going to be one big white elephant. Um, so it was, I mean, there's a lot of credit that goes to the foresight of people like Morgan Quinn, who initially did a, uh, instigated kind of the research into the feasibility for, for the station. And then the likes of Michael D, who took up the baton and really pushed yeah. it forward. And I think one of the really key decisions that was made by Michael D as Minister for the Arts, Culture and the Girls at the time was not to base TG Cahar or Tina G in Dublin because he said he wanted the station to have its own identity, to to have a totally different perspective or a Sulela, as we call it, in TG Cahar. And also he recognised the importance of the employment and what that would bring to the rural Gaeltacht areas. Yeah. Uh, and that's been key to the development of TG Car over the years. He also set us up along the model of, of Channel 4 and S4C in Wales. So uh, people might not be aware that we're a publisher broadcaster, which is, very, which is different to RTE. So basically that means that we don't make our own programming and we're very much dependent on the independent production se sector. So we have a very strong relationship with the independent production companies who make the content and we... We commission it and we curate it. They make it for us and we broadcast it. So like an RT production would be like your late, late show, your prime time, that sort of thing. Whereas what you do is you work with production companies to go and make the content, which has ripple effects then within the community because of the work that it provides for so many people. Absolutely. It's it, it's huge. Um, it makes us quite lean. So we're a very small in, in the core of TGCAR compared to other broadcasters. We're a very small organisation. But then the number of people employed in the production companies around the country is is adds to the the, the scale. Uh, but it also keeps us all on our toes. It keeps the companies on their toes because they have to keep pitching for commissions. Uh, but it also allows new blood to come in. It allows innovation to come in. It allows us to be more agile when we need to change with technology changing or when something like COVID hits you. Um, so it, it allows us to be much more adaptable, more agile. Uh, and we can take more, we can take more chances. We can take more calculated risks in, in the type of programming we're doing in the way that we work. So I think it was massively, there was massive foresight to that decision. Um, and thankfully it, it, it wasn't the white elephant. Yeah. Um, we, we, we did, everybody would admit we made lots of mistakes. We learned quickly and we rectified the mistakes, 
but there was a massive energy. There was a huge surge of energy here. And it was happening at a time as well where the film board had been reconstituted. You had the likes of the Roger Corman studio had been set up. So there was lots of people yeah. working for Concord, as it was known. So Roger Corman kind of, they say, you know, helped launch Jack Nicholson's career. He was an American filmmaker, producer who made classic B-movies. Absolutely. Um, Straight to video most yeah, of the time. Yeah, but yeah. they were mad stuff. And he came to the west of Ireland to go, I presume for tax reasons. Yeah. Um, because the Irish government was supporting if you do productions here that, um, you know, you get a certain amount of tax back or whatever that you can do for reinvestment. But the, the Roger Corman studio being based then in the west of Ireland, suddenly you had a person who was involved in the filmmaking industry in North America for 30, maybe 40 years, mm -hmm. being able to train people up. Yeah. Uh, intensely so it, it's not your we'll start at nine o'clock we'll have a little coffee break at quarter past ten we'll go back at eleven this sounds like 14 hour yeah. days probably and it's not hollywood it's west of ireland it can be lashing rain it can mm -hmm. be windy but like everyone i know who worked in corman studios had a blast yeah it was hard labor they churned out they the learned so much they churned out the productions but it was exactly as you say it trained all people in all the different grades. Mm. So uh, very quickly you had then a, more of a nucleus of people who could work in the film and media industry here in the West. Yeah. Um, and, and, and again, it was just a blast at the time. It was just heady days, really. You know, everybody was working really long hours. Um, at the time, I, I, I wasn't in Teenage. I was in, in Rusnaroon. So um, uh, fortuitously for me, from my theatre days, I got to know a man called Art O'Brien, who sadly passed away. Art was a senior producer in RTE, but he was an Irish language speaker as well and a great character and a fantastic mentor and a real, uh, a real inspiration. Um, one of the people who really inspired me. But Art used got to know us in our theatre days and he, he was brought down before Teenage started to do a six part uh, drama programme. Well, a six part Irish language programme, which was produced with Telegail in the Irish language called Asha Amach. So he needed a whole crew of actors and mad people and whatever to do this. It was really off the wall, crazy kind of kind of um, experimental TV series. So we got to know each other well there. And then Art, when when Russ Naroon was being commissioned as a co-production, Art was brought in as the first series producer. So he asked me to give him a hand. He said, look, I'm coming from Dublin. I want local actors. We need local talent. I don't yeah. want this to be some fakey thing where we bring people in pretending to speak real Irish. So uh, I, I would have helped him out initially in the casting of, of Russ Naroon. Uh, and then we were sitting in Nocton's one day after doing a session of casting or whatever, working on scripts. And he turned around to me and said, by the way, he says, um, I don't have any directors from the West and I don't have any fluent Irish speakers. And I really think it's important that we have a few of those to start off with. So I said, do you fancy being a director on Ross Naroon? And I was looking at him because my understanding of, of directing and saying, looking at the likes of Fair City or Glen Row at the time or Coronation Street was that the type of people who were directing had at least 30 or 40 years experience and they'd come up through the ranks in, in an established national broadcaster. Uh, and I was this lad who'd come off who'd been going around the country doing plays as Gaelga and then had come off this uh, short uh, TV production course with the Udras. Uh, and he said, look, I said, I'll give it a go. I said, but I don't know what I'm doing. He said, don't worry, I'll be right behind you. And he wasn't, of course, because everything was <laughs> so hectic. So um, so I went I went into Russell Roon then as a director and I, I literally had a clue how to do camera scripts. 
I had an idea. So I, uh, one of the other uh, directors who was working with us was a guy called Charlie McCarthy from Cork, who was a great character and a really good director. So I said to Charlie, how do you do camera scripts? He says, I don't know. I just make them up, really. <laughs> so so, so we basically, he, he kind of mentored me through my first set of things. But what I did know at the time was how to work with actors. So that yeah. was my, my strength. So yeah. learning the technique of the camera angles and the lights and how to move people around uh, came to me as I was working. But what I really d did know was how to get the actors to act yeah. and how to get them to be real and how to get them to interact properly. So I was bringing that with me as my, my strength, I suppose. Um, so I had some great years and, and Art, Art was a fantastic mentor through the, through all of that. And and Russ Naroon as well. And really inspirational people like Maureen Hoohul, who had the foresight to set up old television spittle. Mm -hmm. um, sadly as well, Maura passed away far too young, but Maura was an amazing woman. From Mayo um, had initially, I think she was a, a, an ag science teacher. It was her, was her background and she went to Dublin like a lot of country folk do. Uh, she was from Tumarkidi. Uh, and she got a job with Borden the Gaelga because, you know, they were good state jobs and yeah, whatever. Yeah. So uh, Maura was actually um, working, giving out grants for artistic stuff. And we'd met, Ma I'd met Maura previously because she gave Nafani a hundred pound grant at one stage to do a production. But Maura then was one of the, she's, she was always out of the blocks quickly. So she saw that there was a, there was a new industry developing in the West. She wanted a, an Irish language production company. So she wanted to learn from people who knew what they were doing. So she she teamed up initially with Coco Productions, uh, who who had a good track record at the time. So they set up a company in Spiddle and then Maura developed that into Otelefish. And when T.G. Carr was coming along then, or Tina G at the time, she pitched for Russ Naroon. She pitched for the gig. And what happened was that I think Tina G at the time felt, yeah, it'd be good to have her on board, but we don't know whether she the company is big enough or you know experienced enough to do something as big as this so yeah. what they did basically was they created a clownless or a marriage between her Otelefish and Tyrone Productions in Dublin okay. so Ross Rune has been a co-production from day one between the two companies but Mara's ethos always was um, cutting edge technology try and do things better easier simpler cheaper if possible uh, not cut corners, still keep the keep, keep the quality high, but yeah, try yeah, and find new ways of doing it. But in terms of keeping the quality high, like the cool thing about Ross and Rune was, didn't they go to, was it Manchester to the set of Coronation Street or something, see how they built a street? Uh, and I don't know, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, have you been lucky enough to go and visit the set of Ross and Rune? But it's just so cool how it's built. So outside on the street, which is literally like a real street, and you have your pubs and your shops and your post office and all that. And then inside are other sets of bedrooms and sitting rooms and kitchens and the pub and just how the whole thing is just designed so neatly um, is Really, really impressive. But you went and you did your research. Yeah, so the, the, Maura would have done that. It was, you went Duncan Stewart actually was the architect. Okay. So they did two really crazy things, I suppose, at the time, but they've paid dividends. Number one, they built a studio which has two stories, mm. uh, which is, some people would say is crazy, but it means that you can fit more sets onto a, on, onto a smaller footprint. But also then they built the uh, the the exteriors of the, the buildings on, on the exterior of the studio, but also put windows in. 
So the lighting guys initially would have cursed more because <laughs> they had less control because if the sun came up or down, obviously the, the, the lighting in the studio changed. But what it did do was it gave it a much more realistic look. Yeah. So that look has has, has ma been maintained in Rosnaroon at the time. But the other thing she did as well was uh, at the time, and you, you're possibly just about old enough to remember this, Gary, that we used to have to record everything onto tape. Mm. So when you were recording something, it was recorded onto this big digibeta tape, which was like a brick. Uh, and then you'd have to bring that back to the edit suite. You'd have to digitize that, which would take the length of time of the, if it was a 30 minute tape, it was 30 minutes. Yeah, the, And it was only then yeah. you could start to do the edit. Maura Mar said, there must, be, there must be a more efficient way of doing this. So she contacted Apple, who at the time were in Cork. And she said, can we do, can we record straight to disc? And they kind of said, well, it hasn't been done before, but we'll give it a go. So she actually pioneered the first soap that recorded straight to drives in in the world, as far as I know, but certainly in the British Isles. Uh, so the only stipulation TG Carr had at the time was that you have to have a backup of a tape. Yeah. And I remember in the first year, I think we we only ended up having to go back to the tape once or twice. The, she she had the just that wherewithal, record it straight to the drive, take your drive into the edit suite and off you go, you're editing straight away. And that really snowballed because RTE followed suit quite quickly afterwards as well. But she just, she, she innovated, she was inspirational, but she also had a huge emphasis on training and training people up and empowering people and getting local people. So initially we had to bring in heads of department from outside, yeah. but with every head of department, there had to be a local person who was a Gaelgar who was coming up to replace them once they, once they moved on. And Ross Darun has constantly been a training ground, I suppose, as well as a production company. And it's incredible. What's what's the the, the legacy of Rustin Rune is amazing and Mara's legacy is incredible. Yeah, hundred percent. And we were saying before we started recording the amount of people who've, you know, gone to do go on do so well for themselves that initially started off in Rustin and, you know, they're acting in feature films. They've set up public companies like Dara Couturish there. Yeah. And didn't Rustin Rune have the first gay kiss yes. on Irish television? Yeah, it did. So again, it was constantly trying to break new ground. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Um, there was actually probably one of the best, uh, I can't call it a publicity stunt, but a publicity happening uh, was when one of the, a primary school teacher in Connemara told people to stop watching that thing, Rustin Room, because there's awful stuff going on in it. <laughs> and he was talking about the first gay kiss. Okay. Um, but then obviously all the kids wanted to watch it because was, yeah. what's he talking about? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was, yeah. So there was a character, uh, Jim Rodefuita and Niall O'Sheridan were the first gay couple, Jack and Tom. Yeah. in, in Rastanaroon and and their relationship uh, developed during their time on screen and then they had the first gay kiss yeah. on Rastanaroon, yeah. But again, it wasn't done in a sensationalist way. No. I think um, it was done uh, as a story. It could have been a heterosexual couple. Yeah. The, their relationship had developed to the stage where they were falling in love and they kissed. Yeah. And, and any story from my time in, in Rastanaroon and I'm sure the following it since is, you know, the story comes first. The characters come first. And weren't the writers working with people from who were involved in Dallas or something like that? There would have been initially, yeah. And there would have been a very strong relationship with um, Wales and S4C. So S4C is the, the Welsh medium language channel, which kind of came on stream 10 years ahead of us. So we we looked to them quite a lot. And they have a long running soap called Publicum. Um, which is produced. So we we kind of learned an awful lot from them about just just the logistics of how to produce a soap because it is it's a huge production, um, so many people involved, so many moving parts, 
that you have to learn how to schedule really well. You have to, you work your arc of your storylines over a year in advance. You mm. then break it down into, you know, bite-sized pieces and then the writers get to write what they're doing. It's quite formulaic in a way, but it's, um, we learned a huge amount from the likes of them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I suppose the thing is as well, it's not that you come up with an idea, a great idea, and then you just say, but everyone speaks Irish. It has to be plausible why people speak Irish in a, in a show in a in a soap or whatever um so it's not as easy to formulate as people might uh, at first think mm-hmm. um i don't know do you remember when i auditioned for us <laughs> yeah yeah you laugh on the outside i cringe on the inside really yeah yeah, yeah. um but I, I you know at the same time i think of it very fondly so i i wanted to get into acting when i when i when i left college and i was i was a director. I directed a play in the drama sock in college and so on. So, and my skill always as a director was focusing on the acting rather than the cinematography and the sound and all that. But I always wanted to get into acting myself. So I auditioned that you were looking for actors and a friend of mine had said to me, look, don't worry if your Irish isn't strong enough because if you're going in auditioning, you'll get the script in Irish and English. So just, you'll know the dialogue. So I, okay, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and I got the script and it was all in Irish, all Oscale, as we say. There wasn't an English word printed on the page. <laughs> so I was looking at this ream of dialogue and I was doing the scene with uh, an actress called Fanula who played the role of Bernie. Mm-hmm. And and I, I'm looking at the script and I was like, okay, I was figuring out bits and pieces, but I wasn't getting the, the backstory of what was going on. So in my head, I said, the best thing I'll do is just do the best method acting that I can do, you know, yeah. just be really intense, really kind of Marlon Brando, James Dean type scene. And I was sitting on the seat beside Fanula. And the next minute I just kind of got down on one knee and I carried on the dialogue and I was speaking up to her and you were like, okay, yeah, that's great, Gary. Can you do that again, but just stay on the seat? <laughs> and I think that was kind of a nod to say like, you don't need to go OTT with this yeah. performance. But at the end of it, you you knew I had a bit of Irish, but I wasn't um, fluent. Mm-hmm. But you still gave me a job as the city doctor, yeah, um, who spoke uh, English. Mm-hmm. Might have known a bit of Irish, but spoke English because he was based in the city. So I got to star in Fantastic. a few episodes as the city doctor in Rossinroon, and I absolutely loved it. Fantastic. Um, but it was so there was just the energy on set. It was so. Everyone was so supportive. No one, and I, I, I always fondly look back. And sadly, um, even I was looking at a piece there recently with uh, Joe Steve on oh, yeah. uh, and, and there's some amazing kind of stalwarts, uh, uh, kind of older actors who were working it that were just so sound to th- these young people yeah. coming in who just hadn't a clue what they were at. Um, yeah, just been a comfort. Incredible generosity. I mean, yeah, Dermot McAnister who played Seamus for years, yeah. Joe who played Pather. Uh, Tom Sally of Laharta who right, played yeah. Codeine. And these guys had all been involved in one way or another in amateur drama uh, and had just had this innate ability. I think it's something very particular to the Irish language, to the Gaeltacht areas and to, to Ireland in general, but certainly in the Gaeltacht areas that drama, storytelling, performing just is second nature. Mm. Uh, and they had great authenticity in the way they acted because it wasn't formulaic. It was coming from somewhere much deeper inside of them. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what we would have always looked for in Ross and Rune. And the other thing is 
encouraging everybody not to be looking at people's faults, but saying, ah, yeah, well, maybe that didn't work. Try this. Uh, that was certainly a culture that Marnie Hool definitely fostered, but all of the, the cast and crew. And I think because we were all, we all knew we were learning from other people. You felt that legacy that you, your, your um, responsibility was to pass it on to the next generation. And that's something that's always stayed with me. And it's something I, I write about in the, in the, in the blogs uh, or in the, in the newsletters from time to time is that, you know, we're, we're, we're just passing through, we're all just passing through life or, or the job or the role or where we're working. And I think that our job is to empower those coming behind us to do better. Yeah. You know, and that the, the sign of real leaders is people not, not wanting to be seen as the best leader ever, but actually if you're a real leader, you want to make sure the next leader coming behind you is even better. Um, and I think that's how TG Cahar from the Carta Shivilta, it's grown from radio, it's grown for the user, it's grown into television, and who knows what, what the next steps are. You know, when you see the likes of Uncanny Kuhn, it's exactly, going, yeah. going another for an level. Oscar. And why not? It's about, I think, having the belief that, yeah, we've never done it before, but there's nothing to say that we couldn't do it if we really put our mind to it. I, again, just to see how, how the language has changed culturally so much in the last 30 years. I mean, uh, my two girls now are going to an Irish speaking school. So they're like, it's, it's amazing to see them speaking Irish fluently uh, compared to the generation before. Um, you know, they go to summer camps um, that are, are based in the Gaeltacht. You have an avalanche of people from all over uh, the island of Ireland that head to Gaeltacht areas for mm. summer camps during the summer. Um, and, and again, there's new shows coming out from TG Carr, like Sailella and so on. Again, going for maybe a younger audience mm-hmm. uh, as, as opposed to the demographic target audience for Ross and Rune. So again, more and more young people doing it. There's films being made in Irish now today today as we speak. And as you mentioned, and Colin Kuhn, which is also known as The Quiet Girl, which was up for an Oscar there last year. Um, the whole landscape has changed so much in the last 30 years mm-hmm. and the attitude towards it. it it's amazing. It's it, it's so positive. And also just talking about TG Cahar as well, I think something that worked very well in their favor or certainly in the favor for people like me working in the industry was. I remember when I came out of college and we set up a production company, if you wanted to pitch an idea, you know, you'd send it off to the likes of RT, BBC, UTV, Channel 4, and it would be sent off via post, sometimes at the time, and then it, it advanced to email and then it advanced to actually online application forms. But that was pretty much all you heard. Or you might get two lines back saying, unfortunately, yeah, your project isn't being selected yeah. or isn't progressing. But with TG Kahar, you had people like um, Mihal O'Malley. And, and I'm sure things have changed now. But in the day, you could go out and you could sit down and have a coffee with him in the canteen in TG Kahar. You tell him about your idea. Mm-hmm. He'd tell you why it wouldn't work because of X, Y, and Z, what you could do to maybe improve it, different ideas. But you could pitch maybe five or six different ideas there and then in a nice and formal manner, have a discussion mm-hmm. and come away. You mightn't even come away with a project, but you came away with an understanding of why it wasn't going to be commissioned or maybe what TG Cahar are looking for and go off and research and come up with an idea that might fit there. And it was amazing mm-hmm. to have those one-on-one discussions. And I think part of that is because of being set up as a publisher broadcaster in that we are very much dependent on the production, the independent production sector to bring in 
the program ideas. Um, and you can still have that kind of relationship with the commissioning editors in TGR. We're really lucky to have such an amazing team of people who really know their stuff, but are very open and want to encourage people to come and bring their best stuff. Yeah. So we still that still happens. We've obviously we've formalized our pr- our process, but initial conversations happen all the time with production companies and anybody who's new coming into the industry. We we'd always advise them as well and say, you know, maybe initially that they should work with a different production company as a track record, get a few flying hours up or make a few programs, get their credit on, on, on a program. Uh, but again, it's about bringing forward, forward that new, that new generation. One of the key things that was done by my current boss, Alan Esselmont, who's been very strategic in trying to increase uh, the sustainability of the companies, but also the the international uh, reach of some of the companies that we work with was to bring in uh, multi-annual production contracts. Because what, what we had found and what he had no- noticed was that it was very much hand-to-mouth uh, existence for production companies. And it was a bit like a Hunger Games scenario where there was a couple of uh, commissioning rounds every year. Everybody had to pitch at the same time, survival of the fittest, etc. Mm-hmm. So he brought in multi-annual contracts where a company will get a contract for three to four years, work with the commissioning editor on a, a very concrete theme of programs, uh, but with wiggle room within that then to decide the particular content. Uh, and that's given all of those companies that have been successful a much stronger base to work from. Uh, and and what what it's done means they can, they can hire people, they can keep them full time, they can get an office, they can invest in equipment, they can do research, etc. Um, and the, the next rational step then for for those companies is trying to suggest them to to diversify to work with other broadcasters and to internationalize because that makes them much more sustainable in, in the longer term so thankfully we're seeing that happening as well but but that policy of being open to talk to anybody is still there very very much so and our commissioning editors are always they love to talk to people about ideas that's that's what they love is get a good idea and let's see how we can make it work that's brilliant so yeah. So I knew you as a producer of Ross and Arun for years. And then one day I hear that Trevor is entering politics. I'm like, God, I never would have thought he'd enter politics. Mm-hmm. And then I heard that you were um, joining the Sinn Féin party, mm-hmm. which again, for those who wouldn't be too familiar with Irish politics, they wouldn't be, we'd say, one of the the the, the more popular at the time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, your popular political parties at the time would have been your Fianna Fáil, your Fianna Gael, maybe your Labour. I don't know where the PDs are around mm-hmm. at the time. And Sinn Féin were quite a controversial party as well with, mm-hmm. um, you know, the troubles up in Northern Ireland and so on because they were the political representative body of the IRA. So it seemed such a change mm-hmm. from the Trevor that I knew involved in you know, T.G. Cahar and Ross and Roon to just have that shift into mm. politics. So tell me about that decision. Yeah, so it wasn't a gradual decision. It was after, so I worked in Ross and Roon, I did a bit in Fair City and I also had my own production company for about 12 years. Uh, so I'd done a lot of media work and I ended up doing three, three and a half years as serious producer of Ross and Roon. Um, and I was actually just worn out at the end of it. I was burnt out. I loved the work. And I really enjoyed it, but I was so tired. I needed a break. And I knew if I didn't do something completely different, I'd get sucked straight back into media. So my first step out into the community was to work with a, a very small community development co-op in Lettermore, in Canton and Nillan, in Lettermore area, which was literally, it was potholes. It was false courses again. It was uh, local, local development. 
Uh, and from that, then I another opportunity came up to run what was called a partnership company, which was a social development company in South Connemara called Comus. Mm. So Comus then was dealing with people um, who were coming from um, disadvantaged backgrounds. So it could be unemployed people, people with a disability, LGBT community, uh, lone parents, that kind of thing. So it was a, it was funded a state funded organization helping people in those in in that space. I was there for a couple of years as well. Um, so I, I think as well, uh, I was growing up a little bit. I was looking around at my community and I felt that the level of investment and what was happening in my community wasn't where it should be. I felt that we needed a voice to voice a lot of the concerns that we had had. I had a brief foray into politics previously when I bumped into Michael D one day uh, and uh, once I joined the Labour Party initially mm. way back. And uh, Michael D invited me once to run for the local elections for, for the Labour Party, which I did. And I was a member of the Labour Party for a number of years, but I felt we were being let down on the Irish language. And the Irish language was core to me and my beliefs. And I felt that there was a lot of lip service, really. A lot of good work being doing, really nice people, good people in the party. But I just felt they weren't serious about the Irish language. And I left it behind then to do this community development work. And I was approached by Sinn Féin. Uh, I was working in that in the in that company, and I, I said no. I think three or four times initially, uh, and we had a lot of conversations because I would have had misgivings about the the past and the history, and whatever. But what what kind of appealed to me, I suppose, was um, the emphasis on social justice, on uh, grassroots development, uh, helping your local community. They were stronger on the language as well. Um, um, so, so I was convinced then, yeah, I, I'll give this, I'll give this a run. Um, so I did, I got involved with the party and, um, I ran for the general election and I was, um, there's a bit of a story behind this as well, I suppose, because in the meantime, uh, I'd left Comus and got back to Morony Hool and, um, Comus was subsumed into a bigger company called MFG, which, well, and this goes back to the whole area of leadership, I suppose. MFG was a Gaelthoth-wide company and we were basically sucked into it. And we could, I could see just, there was massive governance issues. There was awful, there was crazy stuff going on. There was money that wasn't accounted for. And I really felt uncomfortable being in the company. Mm -hmm. We brought that to the powers that be that didn't listen to us, I said. So I said, I, I can't countenance staying in an organization and working for people like this. So I left. And straight, then a year and a half later, the whole thing went belly up and those millions lost. So in the meantime, I'd got, I, I had no job. I had a couple of kids. I'd got married and I said to Marnie, well, I need to get a job. What can we do? So we pitched between myself and Marnie, who we pitched for the Irish language newspaper, uh, Gaelscale. So we set up, we, we, we got the gig in conjunction with the Connacht Tribune and we set up Gaelscale, which was a national Irish language newspaper. And I was working for that. And in the interim, then I was being asked to run for general election. So I approached Maureen and I said, look, Mark, can I take a sabbatical here for three months? I want to run for election. And yeah, because you probably couldn't be involved in journalism. No. If you're, yeah. yeah. So I wanted to step back. My role wasn't journalistic as such. It was more as a producer of the, from the production side of things. So the editorial was separate. So I said to Maureen, do you mind if, if I take a sabbatical for three months? I want I really want to do this. And she said, yeah, as long as the other... Uh, person involved in, in the running of the organization is happy with that. So when I approached him, he said, no, you can't. Sorry. <laughs> and I'm one of those people that when somebody tells me you can't do something, I kind of want to do it more, which is, okay, yeah. I don't know whether it's a flaw or something positive in my personality, but so I said, well, that's fine. So I, I'm, I'm leaving anyway. So I ran for the general election and I was cocksure I was going to get elected and had no job, had no income uh, and I didn't get elected. 
And I turned to my wife and said, I don't know what we're going to do now. So, And did you have to personally invest yourself during that election into campaign posters and stuff? Or is that done by the party? There was a mix of both. Yeah, to be honest, we did fundraising. Um, but, you know, I put my own funds into it and the party put some funds into it as well. Uh, and we did really well. But again, we we didn't have any, um, we weren't on the ground long enough. Uh, the campaign wasn't long enough, etc. And what, you know, so you're going around, you're going door to door. Mm-hmm. Um what year is this initially that you're running? 2010, 2011, yeah. So the crash of the Celtic Tiger, yeah. the economic boom has hit yeah. Ireland. Um, so what sort of conversations are you having on doorsteps? It was very, very mixed. So some people were very angry with what was happening. Um, no matter what party you run for, I would always suggest somebody to go canvassing at some time, at some stage in your life, because you visit places in your own locality that you never knew existed. You go up all the boatings, you meet people who don't get to come out of their houses. You really see how your community lives uh, and not just the people you get to bump into in the shop or the church or at the GAA match or whatever. Yeah. You actually see everybody, people with disability, older people who can't leave their houses, people who are ill, mentally ill, uh, people who are struggling financially. All You see all that kind of stuff. So a lot of the conversations at that time were around how the mess the country was in, the, how we were in hock to the banks and we needed to do something about it. I got a lot of flack as well because of the party I was running with. Uh, and you take that on the chin and you you discuss that with the people on the doorsteps as well. So it was a mixed bag, but generally um, a positive reaction. I found I got a really positive reaction. And I think we only had a three month campaign compared to others who'd been running since the previous election. So we did very, very well. Um, and in the heel of the hunt, then um, the party rang me maybe two weeks after the general election said, look, the Shannon election's coming up. Would you be interested in putting your name forward for the Shannon? To become a senator. To become a senator. And I said, I'd never really thought about it. I hadn't even considered it. I didn't know how the election worked or whatever. I said, well, we'll, we'll work with you on that. So we, thankfully we, we did. And I, they put me forward for the Shannon election. I got elected in 2011. And so I served a full term and then I, I, I got reelected the second time again as well. So what, what was that experience like? It was it was an amazing experience, really. Um, I felt a little bit like a, a fraud initially going up there. Who was this country lad from the West of Connemara going up with all these big senators who knew what they were talking about? I felt, you know, um, like I had the imposter syndrome big time. Yeah. But I learned very, very quickly that um, everybody else up there was an ordinary person as well. Everybody else had their own hopes and desires and worries and, you know, were, were, were doing as much as they could to to help their own communities. Different perspectives, different political perspectives, different cultural perspectives. But, you know, genuinely, I, I kind of settled in quite quickly and I enjoyed I enjoyed the hustle and bustle of the debates. Uh, you know, I, we'd always uh, play the ball and not the man. So we got into some great tussles in the Shannon. And I, I, I still have some really fantastic friends from the Shannon from all across the political spectrum. And I hope they respect me for if I ever tackled them, it was tackling the issue and not the person. Yeah. Uh, and I think that was the thing I learned is you don't tackle the person, you tackle the issue. And then you you can talk to people afterwards in a very different way. Um, so I, I, I used it as a platform to vocalise on as much as I could on Irish language issues, on rural issues, on issues of discrimination, on issues of human rights. Um, and I also got to travel quite a lot in my role, which was incredible. And I, I met amazing people in the Shannon as well, people who would come in. And as, as we've, we've learned over the last number of months, I think an awful lot of the work in the parliament is done in committee. So I sat on quite a few committees and um, you'd engage with the stakeholders on, on, on things there. So 
you know, I would have engaged on the education committee, for example, uh, promoting the rights of, of for education on the islands. And we were very successful to get a policy through there. We did a lot of work on another committee, the Public Service Oversight and Petitions Committee around direct provision uh, and what we felt was the injustice of direct provision and the direct provision system. Um, so those types of issues. So it was an incredible time. And what's your proudest moment or proudest achievement as a senator? Um, probably raising those issues, yeah. You know, and knowing that I, I did my best to do those. My proudest moment, honestly, was the day... I had an unusual experience in that I, I chose to step down and I, I decided the date and senators tended either to be non-elected, so you lose your seat uh, in, in that sense, or you pass away. So um, very graciously then the the Cahillach of the Shannon at the time, Dennis O'Donovan, said um, "There's a, at the beginning of every day in the Shannon there's an order of business. So he dedicated the order of business to me the day I was finishing and no, no other political issues were raised, but most of the senators there spoke about their experience with me in the Shannon. And I was very, very humbled by all of the contributions. And it was something very, very special to have all these people who you've worked with over the last number of years. And some of them you've lambasted and they've lambasted yeah. you. But there was that genuine sense of respect for the worker. And I got the also the huge respect for being able to make a decision to step down. And why did you step down? Um, I stepped down for a number of reasons. So... Initially, I had a, a fallen out with the party a number of months previous to that um, because of issues I'd seen locally in our constituency, which I wasn't happy with. I, I utilised the grievance procedures within the system of the party and I just felt they they failed. They failed really in addressing the issues that were being brought to bear. So I stepped down from the party publicly on, on that. Um, and then I was an independent for a number of months and at the time, it, the other the other thing about politics was it takes a huge toll on family. Mm. Um, I had a young family and I hadn't seen much of them in those seven years. Um, I travelled an awful lot. When you came back to the constituency, you were on the go all the time. Um, so you'd be at public meetings almost every evening or at weekends. So didn't get to see much of them. So it take a huge toll on me personally, but particularly on my family. So and I say if you're in the pub lucky enough to have a pint or if you're going to church and you're walking out of mass, I'm sure everyone's probably pulling you to the side to tell you some issue yeah. they're having. I, w I wouldn't go to the pub, to be <laughs> honest. And I'd given up drink a number of years forward, so I wasn't a pub man anymore. Yeah. And if for any reason I was kind of in a pub, I, I'd get out as fast as but I could. Were really. you being constantly pulled? Totally, yeah, yeah. yeah. The joke at home was that, you know, my wife didn't want to send me down to the shop to get a loaf of bread because it'd take me at least three hours. Yeah. And, you know, I never didn't talk to people because their issues were genuine. They needed to speak to somebody and you were there. You are a public representative and you're there to represent them. Um, and it was frustrating, I suppose. And sometimes you'd think there's something you can do about this issue and others you can see there's nothing you can really do about it. So um, some people were really angry. Some people were unhappy. Um, that didn't, I didn't mind that. I never held that against anybody, to be honest. But it was probably more the toll on family and the lifestyle. And I didn't know where it was going, to be honest. I never, as you can probably gather, I'd never had a career path. I'd never had a plan. Um, but I just kind of felt the time was up for me in the Shannon and I didn't see where it was going. So we were home that Christmas um, and I saw an ad in the paper for a job as communications manager with TG Cahern. And jokingly, I said to my wife, that'd be a great job if I wasn't involved in politics. And she kind of looked at me and said, yeah, yeah, that'd be a great job. <laughs> Full stop. <laughs> uh, yeah. So then I suppose I could, we considered 
applying for it. And I said, look, I'll apply for it anyway, but I'm never going to get it because I don't think a broadcaster is going to want somebody with my background because it might be more complicated for the broadcaster. So she said, well, look, just do the interview and see how you get on. And uh, so I did, I applied, I did the interview. Um, I still felt, look, I might do well in the interview, but the, you know, people may be uncomfortable. But thankfully, um, the uh, interview panel and the board of TGCAR, they said they felt I was the best candidate for the job at the time and they were willing to give me a, give me a chance to come back and to do that. Um, the only one caveat was that I wasn't allowed to be uh, the front person. Uh, for a, for a year, so I had a kind of an incubation period of a year where I was putting other people up front, okay. and uh, that suited me down to the ground. Actually, I loved doing that, so I wasn't going to be the public public face of the the organisation for a year. So it's it's gone from there. So I communications managed for about a year and a half. Really enjoyed it, uh, and then the opportunity to come um, for a director of operations and HR. So I applied for that role because when I saw the job spec and I looked at all the different things that I'd done. I'd managed in a lot of situations. I dealt with negotiations. Uh, I was serious producing Ross and Rune. I had a lot of the requisites yeah. there and I liked dealing with people. I loved working with people. So from the HR perspective, I wasn't afraid of that. Or did, a lot of people say, oh, Jeannie Mac, why would you work, work in HR? It's just people giving out all the time. I said, well, I've been listening to people giving out for seven years and I don't mind it. So, yeah. yeah. So I'm really, really lucky um, that Alan and the board put their faith in me and hopefully I've delivered back in space for them. Excellent. Yeah. And, and looking back now, what's your, your take on the Irish political landscape as, you know, from a cold neutral point of view? I think it's very difficult. I think people underestimate the level of pressure on politicians. Uh, it's not a nice lifestyle, really. It's not conducive to family life. It's... Um, I saw a lot of people who were quite depressed. I saw people who were, you know, there was a lot of a lot of heavy drinking and mm. um, prob probably drug taking as well. And um, people working really long hours and very committed. But then it, it's a very fast drop if you lose an election and there's no there's no safety net to psychologically to support people. And um, all of a sudden you're going from being somebody who's being, you know, at everybody's beck and call. They want you at their meetings. They want to talk to you. And then all of a sudden you're yesterday's person. And I saw that when I when I when I stepped down myself, I was I was surprised, but I was happy in one way that the phone stopped ringing immediately. You know, the people who had been ringing me for weeks before and stopped ringing almost overnight. It was it was incredible uh, to see. But I can now I can relate to other politicians who go through that as well and maybe lose an election. Uh, and a lot of them, I was lucky, I suppose, my identity wasn't all tied up in being in the status of the of the role. I was my own person. But other people do get caught up in that, that it is their, their be all and end all and getting elected at the next election is all they, all they focus on. And if you lose that, it can be difficult, but it is, it's, it's a huge strain mentally and physically. Um, a lot wonderful, wonderful experiences on the other side of that to counterbalance it, but, um, it's a difficult lifestyle. Yeah. Uh, and I think part of the reason I started writing the, the newsletter was trying to figure out what's wrong with leadership and politics. Mm. And I think it's because um, it's such a combative scenario. It's the antithesis of what real leadership is about, really, because so I've coined this phrase of real leadership, which is about resilience, empowering and authenticity. So certainly um, to be a politician, you have to be resilient. You've got to be able to bounce back. You take the you take the hits, you come back with, you know, you're you're agile, you change you can change your position on on things, you can negotiate with people, etc. 
Um, it's not empowering though, because you most politicians are focusing on them keeping their own seat. Mm. So the one the last thing you want to do is empower the people coming up behind you. Yeah. So you got to keep those councillors at bay. You've got to keep your constituency colleagues at bay. You've got to watch your back within the party. So it's not really empowering anybody else. Yeah. So you. There's that constant looking over your shoulder when you're in a political party of who's coming behind me and are they going to try and undermine me? So it's 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 really not conducive to work, collaborative work, I think. Yeah. And also authenticity. Um, the whole idea of authenticity, of being your real self, being able to say what you really believe, um, being true to your own values can be difficult, particularly within po political parties, yes. because you're 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 prone to have to compromise. And follow to follow line. the party line in certain scenarios, but even as independents as well, it's about presenting that persona to the electorate that they, you, you know, you think is a, is actually going to be electable, uh, and you're constantly gauging that. You're gauging the audience, etc. So I really don't think any politician can be their authentic self. So I think that's why political leadership has a has a real challenge about be, to be real leaders. And they're very rare. I think a good example would have been Jacinda Ardern. Never met her personally, but from what I've read about her, I, I got that sense that she was able to be resilient. She was empowering and she was authentic um, because she actually took very bold steps to do things that maybe weren't palatable or popular. Uh, but people like that are very, very rare in politics. So I think maybe that's something we need to do is look at the political system and try and see, is there a way of working more collaborative, collaboratively um, and that's across party, but also within parties and empowering new people to come up as leaders with great ideas, you know, embrace that passion, give them the chance to do things, let them learn and be authentic to be themselves. You know, we're, we're not always happy. We're not always um, uh, on top of things. You know, we all have the good days and bad days. So I think it's important that we see that our political leaders have that as well. Yeah. Excellent. I love it. Every Sunday morning, I have an awful habit. When I wake up before I go downstairs, make pancakes for the households, I take up my phone, check emails, and I'm pretty much guaranteed that I'll be getting an email into my inbox, which is of your newsletter that you put up on LinkedIn, uh, which is the real leadership newsletter. It's absolutely brilliant. And the way it's broken down into key things, it just I always find Sunday mornings getting newsletters like that are really good because your mind is quiet, you're relaxed, you know, you don't have the hectic week. You're not, or you're not in the middle of it yet. Um, just to take those moments out, it's, it's almost like me time to reflect on what I'm doing in the workplace and how I can be a better leader. And just again, you know, you have to be resilient in business. But I think very much contemporary leadership needs to be about empowering others and having people who work in your organization become stakeholders of the role in their position and not feel that they're being micromanaged, that they have that confidence, that belief to go out and make decisions themselves. And if they make a mistake, which again, we all do, even though we don't like to admit it, um, that we learn from that rather than feeling that if they make a mistake, that there's going to be major repercussions as a result or humiliation. And it's, it's hard to do because uh, every newsletter is different. But c can you kind of summarize, you know, advice you could give people out there who are leaders or want to be leaders in business, the kind of just even the basic things that they need to be thinking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I suppose um, one of the opportunities I was given when I went to TG Cahar was to, to go back to education. So I'd never, I I was going to say, I'd never done a master's. I kind of started master's at one stage and stopped. So I, I had this sense that I wasn't able for one. 
Uh, even though out, outwardly you'd look at me and you think he's really confident, he knows the stuff. But I always had this thing about education that, well, maybe I'd never do it. But And I was really interested in the whole ed- area of change management, leadership, those types of things. So I, I was lucky to go back and do a master's in that. Uh, and I found myself reflecting on it. And um, I think if you don't kind of keep it up, if you don't continuously learn and go back to what you've been taught, you f- it, it fades. It, you, yeah. you don't forget it, but it fades. So I thought to do the to do the um, the net newsletter to try and help others who were in the same situation as myself. And I, I was looking at, well, what's the common thread for me in, in all of the different phases of my life? And it's leadership, really. It's about stepping up. It's about being the first person to do it. It's about giving other people courage, taking the leap of faith. It's about empowering people, etc. So I, I thought, well, what can I, what have I got to offer people? And I think really, I would hope that it's it's leadership and it's, it's lessons around leadership. And it's not me telling people this is this is the way I do everything. I'm perfect. Follow me. It's more about saying these are some of the lessons I've learned and sharing them with others to try and get the conversation going. So I've broken, I came up with the idea of real leadership being resilient. So I think that's really key in a leader. Um, A leader never gives up. (laughs) You know, you'll hit obstacles. Things won't go well, maybe. Um, But you'll keep coming back. And if you really believe in something, you won't Mm. give up on it. So that whole sense of resilience and building resilience in yourself, but also in the team around you, because you need others around you. There are times even in a family or in a community or in a, in a voluntary organization or in a workplace where, you know, you're too tired to carry people yeah. and that you need to let them carry you. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's, you yeah. know, and, and it's about being humble enough to be able to understand that in yourself and being able to do that. Um, so it's about encouraging that resilience in the people around you. Empowering then I think is key to everything. Um, you know, there isn't a leader without followers. So people, you know, people follow a leader because they think they, they're showing us a pathway to, to get to get somewhere. But what we need to do then is empower those people to become the leader so that more people will follow them. And if you want a mass movement, if you want to get elected politically, if you want a wonderful organization that's doing really well, if we want to draw more audience to TG Cahar, mm. we need more leaders. We need leaders to step up uh, and, and to empower them. And to tr- so empower people is about trusting them. You trust them, number one. You give them the space to do what they can do. You let them do things you would never do. Uh, and you have to say to yourself, I wouldn't have done it that way, but actually it's much better. Um, I use the example in um, TG Cahar, for example. I was communications manager. I, I think I did a reasonably good job. Two people have come in subsequently to that role. I think they've done a much better job, but they brought it in different directions and, and directions I would never have thought of. Yeah. Uh, but it's about giving people the space and trusting them to do it, giving them guidance on, on, you know, if you think maybe they should do a bit more of this, a bit less of that. But it's about empowering people that they they have the confidence in themselves that they can actually be leaders as well. And authenticity is about um, life being messy, I suppose. Um, you learn a lot, I suppose, in my HR role, we learn a lot about people that um, just coming to work to do a job is only part of the person, you know. What's happening at home? You know, how's how are their relationships? How are their children? Is there somebody ill? Are they under pressure from other commitments, financially, whatever? Everybody is unique and everybody has their whole set of pressures. Um, diversity within a workforce as well, I think, is really interesting. Mm. And particularly, I've been looking at neurodiversity in, in the last couple of years. Um, I think neurodiversity is where people just think differently. Um, we're seeing a lot more people are now being diagnosed as being maybe on, on, on the spectrum or just, in you know, have difficulties with ADHD and things like that. 
for me, space where, where, where you see conflict happening, particularly in, in a working space, I think a lot of that is not understanding the other person. And sometimes it's a neurodivergence possibly happening there. So I think we need to learn to how, how are other people thinking? You know, you may have had a bad morning, you know, you may be under pressure from something else. You may have just got bad news. Um, yeah. Being a leader in that sense means not being afraid to share that about yourself as well. So the people realize, well, you're human. This happens to you. And it's a, it's about your core values as well. Going back to your core values is if you, if, if you feel a particular way, you go and work with an organization who has similar values because then you can align with them. Because if you don't, you're never going to be authentic. So if you work for a business that really does a kind of work that you don't think is great or is, is manipulating people in some way and that's that's not you, get out of the organization. Mm -hmm. Find an organization where your values align with the organization and then try to make sure that the, everybody else in the organization understands that alignment and, 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 and dovetails in with that as well. Very good. Um, so I think that's really, really important. So it's about being resilient, empowering people and being authentic. I think... If you can get those three elements working together, you have a really good chance of becoming a great leader and inspiring other leaders to come behind you. Excellent. And I think alignment is so important as well for setting up a business because I think people might come up with an idea and say, okay, if I do this, I will make money or I'll be really good at this, so I'm going to do it. Or I see people need this, so I'm going to do it. They're often the reasons why people would set up a business. And then you may come to a stage during your business saying, actually, I don't know, does this business line up with my core values? Mm. Um, and a simple example would be, it could be, you know, I love adventure. I find my business so mundane and boring. So I think people even setting up business need to make sure that whatever they're setting up, forget about making money. You know, does it align to who you are, your core values, what drives you and gets you going? Because you may set up a business that commercially is successful, but then trying to actually get up in the morning and, and feel motivated and have inner drive to grow it and pursue it further is very hard if it doesn't align. Mm. So I think it's very much alignment from um, an employee perspective, a leadership perspective, and even a business owner perspective is so important there, what you're saying. Yeah, well, I mean, going back to the to the 80s, when I came home with my commerce degree, I went to the pub with my dad and I told him that uh, I was, I got the commerce degree, but I was actually going to be an actor. And he was very disillusioned with me. He was very unhappy. And, um, but I knew at the time it would have been, I, I actually did an interview at the time for British Airways. So I actually could have got a scholarship and gone to London and worked with British Airways at the time. But something said, no, I want, I want to be an actor. I want to be involved in drama. Mm. And he kind of said, but you'll never get a job. You'll never get a job in that. What are you going to do? Where, you know, how are you going to make money out of that? But I always followed my heart and I've never been out of work. Um, and that's the advice I always give. We, so we we have some really good internship programs. We work a lot with young people coming into the industry and I'll always advise them, follow your heart. Because if you follow your heart, you'll go into do a day's work and you'll love it and the time will fly. But if you go into do a job which you think with your head makes logical sense or somebody else has said you should do that because you'd be good at it, you could be you could be good at it. You could be lucky, but you could be extremely bored, frustrated or feel that you're not using the talents that you've been given. Yeah. So I always say, follow your heart and the work will follow. Yeah. Um, and I, I say that to my kids. Uh, never mind what anybody else is advising you. Follow your heart and do what you really love doing and you won't feel as if you're working at all. Yeah. 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 It's so true. Yeah. Especially when you see people in the workplace and they're not happy and they can make a workplace so toxic. 
And it's like, just get out, just go, yeah. you know, have the confidence to go and find something else for what you really love. Yeah. And uh, with a lot of people, that is fear. And, uh, you know, I'm really conscious that people do have commitments. So people have mortgages, they have kids, et cetera. And there is that fear of taking the next step. But I've never seen anybody who's taken the next step who's regretted it, to be honest. Um, and even I know we would have dealt with it in TG Carr in my HR role that people have decided to maybe leave the organization and it's taken huge courage because they're maybe leaving a permanent pensionable job. But most of the people I've met who've done that because it was right for them have never looked back. Uh, but then thankfully, not all of them are doing that. So we have amazing people working with us who are then within within an organization. Then what it, what it is, is you have to have a progression path. You have to, the other, you asked me what advice can I give? I mean, mm. the, a couple of the things I look for when we're doing interviews is growth mindset and uh, is um, emotional intelligence. I think what people, people have, you have to, every day has to be a school day. You have to be constantly learning, which is one of the reasons I wanted to do the newsletter it wasn't just to keep you amused on a Sunday morning, Gary, it was actually for <laughs> myself as well to keep reminding myself of the things that I need to do and what's important to me in my, in my, in my workspace. But in TG Carr, we have a, a culture now where we really push people to learn more, be it w about themselves, about self-empowerment or a technical skill or working within a group or be mentoring somebody or being mentored or coaching or whatever, uh, because that keeps you fresh. And it keeps you engaged and it keeps you interested. And you should all be looking for what's my next step. So we really, we we look to promote people who have that growth mindset that mm. they're constantly learning. But the other thing then is, is the uh, emotional intelligence is huge. So I think our education system really does a lot of people a disservice because it's based on IQ and it's based on what you can produce on a day. Um, so points and intelligence, et cetera, are really important. And in particular roles are hugely important. But what we find in TGCAR is you need to develop the emotional intelligence as well. That's the understanding of people, being able to listen, being able to empathize with them, being able to support them, being able to help them. Um, and that that's a really key asset in an organization. And there's a, a brilliant book by a guy called Martin Newman called The Emotional Capitalists that talks all about this as well. And it's certainly worth the read, but I think it's really important. So if we're employing particularly anybody in a managerial or a supervisory position, I, I'm I'm always looking for emotional intelligence as well as the other elements. Excellent. Yeah. Before we finish up, this season we're asking people to bring in uh, an item that is of some significance to them in their life. So I see you have something here beside you. Yeah. So can you show me what it is and tell me about it? So this is from my bedroom. My wife's, myself and Mally's bedroom, um, The Art of Marriage. This is a, it's a print that we were given when we did our engaged couples course in Esker Monastery uh, nearly 25 years ago now. Um, it's particularly special because um, there's a whole story about my our house as well, where myself and Mally being in the bedroom because years ago, when I fell for Mali, basically the first time I saw her was when I was, I had my own small production company doing small videos and she was working on a project for a preschool, Irish language preschool project. And the project was based in her grandmother's house and it was being run uh, by an organization and the meeting to pitch for the videos was in the house, but it was also in that bedroom. And my mother who passed away quite young had been involved on this preschool course where it was basically people in the community going out supporting young couples who had had a baby, you know, how to raise your kids with Irish and stuff like that. And it was run by a Jesuit priest. Um, 
and he had passed away, but he was a very great mentor to Mally, my wife. Um, so when we, they had both passed away and I contacted Mally at one stage after that. And I said, maybe we should get you. The important part of the story I just left out was, so I pitched for the gig and I was told I was too expensive. So I didn't get the gig. Subsequently, when both my mom and the priest had passed away, I decided I'm going to contact Mally and say, well, maybe we should do the videos anyway. So I did. I contacted Mally and I met her and uh, we never did the videos, but we continued talking and we fell in love very quickly and we got married very quickly. Um, but when we were getting married at that stage, there was a, a requirement. You had to do a pre-marriage course. So mm. we thought it was the last thing on our mind. We hadn't thought about it. So eventually Mally rang Esker and somebody said, ring Esker and you never know. So they said, we've just had a cancellation. So, you know, you're welcome to come. So that was just the weekend before. So we went and we did our pre-marriage course in Esker. And this was one of the handouts we were given about the art of marriage. Um, so I'll read it because it's self-explanatory. So it says, a good marriage must be created. In the marriage, the little things are the big things. It's never being too old to hold hands. It's remembering to say I love you at least once each day. It's never going to sleep angry. It's having a mutual sense of values and common objectives. It's standing together facing the world. It's forming a circle of love that gathers in the whole family. It's speaking words of appreciation and demonstrating gratitude in thoughtful ways. It's having the capacity to forgive and forget. It's giving each other an atmosphere in which we each can grow. It's a common search for the good and the beautiful. And probably the most important two lines, it's not only marrying the right person, it's being the right partner. So Esker has had a very special place for us because um, we, we, we never planned it, but we actually got invited back to help with the Engaged Couples Weekends in Esker. And we've been, we were helping with those for the last 20 odd years uh, as a couple and it's with other team couples. Um, so this, this for me in encapsulates marriage and, you know, we, we struggle, we struggle with this, but we keep bringing ourselves back to it, you know, um, keep reminding ourselves of it. And that's what we'd be doing on the weekends in Esker. Unfortunately, Esker closed down, um, in the last two years because the, the community had diminished or, you know, had got so small, they couldn't keep the place going. So the, the weekends we've been doing have been uh, fell by the wayside. We weren't able to continue them there, but we were delighted that we found a new home in Castletown in County Leash, uh, which is a very similar place to Esker. And we've set up a group with the other married couples who help us with the weekends. And we're going to be starting those again uh, in the autumn. Now we're going to do a married couples weekend and then we're hopefully doing pre-marriage courses again in Castletown for couples who are getting married. Mm. Um, but that's been a really important part of my private life. Um, it's been really important for me and Mally. It's it's always brought me back to the pr the values that we need to hold dear and we forget. And we, yeah. you know, I fall off the wagon all the time. You know, I'm not always the perfect partner. I'm certainly not. Uh, but it just reminds me. And it's about leadership as well, I suppose, is I fall down and I get up again. Yeah. Kind of vibe. You just, that's the resilience. You just need to come back to it. It's never going to be perfect. And if you think it's going to be perfect, you're deluding yourself, but it's about doing the best you can being united, working together. And I think that for me is part of the authenticity of bringing that into work as well and being a leader in that sense. It's brilliant. It's, it's great to have like even like that template in print because, you know, even in our own marriage, you know, we had boy, the boyfriend-girlfriend stage. We had, you know, the honeymoon period where we're newlyweds, you know, buying the house and all that. Then we've the kids and it all changes yeah. <laughs> and the kids are young now. Well, they're, you know, 
five and ten. Um, but it's still quite exhausting. Yeah. Uh, and the relationship, you know, is, is so different from what it was 10 years ago because you don't have the same time, energy uh, for each other uh, because, you know, raising young children um, takes so much time and dedication and energy as it is. And then I've friends who the, you know, the children have left the house now and the the, the parents, the couple are retired mm. and they're going through a completely new phase now of their relationship because they don't have the distraction of raising children or having a job. They're trying to find a new purpose in their life. They're also now living with someone seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Um, and it's that whole dynamic. So it, I think it's a lovely th- way to finish on because it is that thing of, you know, hopefully those long term relationships we have in life is that awareness of their constantly changing and mm-hmm. the importance of growth and supporting each other and knowing each other's core values and so on. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and we like over the years, we've we've worked with other it's all voluntary, obviously, but we've worked with other couples from around the country and they're like cousins to us, our uncles and aunts now as well, because the thing you talked about, about the phases of marriage is very, very true. And I think we, we were given a, a, a handout by one of the couples one year about that the seven different marriages when you marry, you actually <clears throat> you have seven phases that you go through and it's constantly evolving, constantly changing. So therefore, what's key to a good marriage, I suppose, is the communication about where are we at now? Where do, where where are my feelings? How how am I handling all of this? Where are you at? How can we support each other? And how can we deal with all that change that's going on around us? Because you go through times of of emotions that are really high, where you have fantastic things happening, but then you go through very very sad moments or bereavement or loss or illness in a family. You go through moments of pressure. You go through moments when you're worried about kids. So it's not easy. Um, and it, it's it's been a huge support for us. In, in our marriage and it's been something that's very it's kept me on track basically we always say when, when we were going to any of the weekends it's just like an NCT for our marriage yeah. it's about bringing us back and just retuning ourselves so so if anybody's interested it's uh, we, we've set up a new website and we've renamed ourselves as grasta.org g-r-a-s-t-a dot org if anybody wants to to join us on a weekend we, we'd love to have people so it's a residential weekend um, in a really quiet space away from the hustle and bustle leave your mobile behind and just leave time the kids behind as well. Yeah, leave the kids <laughs> behind and just time for you as a couple just to Brilliant. just to touch base again. Well, Trevor, as I said at the start, you have had a very colourful career. And no doubt from all the stories you have told us today, plenty of colour uh, and interesting moments throughout. So thank you so much for coming in today and joining me on Gary Talks. Yeah, thank you. Good to meet you, man. 